Let's begin by praying for our time together, and uh, then we'll dig in. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the grace of God that you've shown us in Jesus Christ that has enabled us. No matter what stage we are, we're here for a reason, and that's because your grace is at work within us. And so, Lord, I thank you for everyone that's here today as a testimony of whatever level, a common grace or, or saving grace that has led them to be here this morning to celebrate and to learn more about and behold the wonder of your grace in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would think this morning about your words and how they give grace to us and how they change us and lead us to giving grace to others. I I pray for our kids, uh, that they would hear the words of grace and delight in them and be changed by them. I pray that they receive the grace of God that you have for them in Christ. I, I pray for our time, that we might hear words this morning and not treat them as meaningless, insignificant, or religious words, but we would see them for what they are, words of grace to give life, that change us so that we might give life through our words. And so, Lord, help us to do that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. You can find it on page 978 in the Bibles that are provided there in the chairs. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 29 and 30, but I'm also going to jump over into chapter 5, verse 4, just a little bit uh, because it's, it's dealing with similar issues. Chapter 5, verse 4 is in a larger context that's dealing with sep- sexual immorality, uh, and, and I, I'm afraid that if I just deal with it there, I'll have to kind of skip over some stuff, and so I want to focus our attention because our topic for this morning is speech. It's our words. It's, it's as uh, the wisdom literature of Scripture calls it, our tongue, and how we are to think about using our words for the glory of God. I don't know about you, but, but growing up, my parents used all of those common cliches when, when talking to me about my words. I was to think before I spoke, right? And if I couldn't say anything nice to or about my sister or anyone else for that matter, then I wasn't supposed to say anything at all. And if I failed to do that, then I would get a tongue lashing. That was a pun, a play on words. You can thank me later. Um, Thanks. Yeah. It was for you, Keith. Um, I was to let my actions speak louder than my words. I was to practice what I preached. And if the kids in my class ever made fun of me, well, either they didn't mean, truly mean what they had said, or sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But I know, and I'm sure you know as well, there were certainly times where words did cut. Words did hurt. But on the whole, I learned to believe that talk is cheap. That words don't really matter. Actions matter. Feelings matter. Being productive, that really, really matters. But words, that's just a bunch of gum flapping. And so I think that... Maybe that's why out of this deep sense of irony, God called me to be a preacher. Now, there's a measure of truth in all of those old adages that we've been taught growing up. But where they often fall short is that they miss the origin and the purpose of our communication. 
God has revealed himself to us through words, and he has given us the ability to speak for a purpose. And the purpose that he's given us is not simply self-expression, to make my, my thoughts, my attitudes, my opinions known. But self-expression for the glory of God and for the good of others. As I express myself, I am to make him known for the benefit of all. Because God created by his word and he's revealed himself to us through his word and by saving grace through his word, he has made us representatives of him. Then we receive power through words. Our words matter. They are powerful because God's words are powerful. With them, we can kill And with them, we can give life. We can tear down. We can corrupt. We can lead others to death with our words or with our speech. We can build up and give grace as we point others to Christ. Our words matter. And what we're going to see this morning from Ephesians 4, 29 and 30 is that because God has given us grace through his words, We are to give grace through ours. Because God has given us grace through his words, we are to give grace through ours. So please read along with me in Ephesians 4, verses 29 and 30. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Because God has given us grace through his word, we are to give grace through ours. And the first way that we are to do that, according to this text, is by seeking to put off unwholesome speech. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now, this sounds a lot like that parental cliche, right? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But this goes far beyond simply biting our tongues or just withholding impolite, unkind, or negative words. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And that word corrupting means, among other things, bad, evil, or unwholesome. It can mean decayed or rotten. These words are like a decomposing corpse. They are putrid words that lead to the decay and the corruption, both of the speaker and his hearers. It's like a festering and growing mold that consumes everything it touches. And and so just as we shouldn't go around coughing on other people, if we have a contagious virus, we should not express the corrupt thoughts and attitudes of our hearts that would only serve to pollute or further contaminate other people. Paul adds to this in chapter 5 verse 4, if you just want to kind of scroll down there. It says, let no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. I'm sorry, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. He's saying, do not speak anything that is obscene, indecent, or vulgar. I, I don't think I need to give illustrations here, do I? I mean, think about your stereotypical cussing like a sailor or construction worker or whatever, right? I, I don't need to fill in the gaps there. 
But also don't undress or demoralize others with your words. Furthermore, he says, do not, do not engage in foolish or silly, pointless conversation. Foolish talk. It means nothing. It's just silliness. Don't give yourselves over to that. Stop trying to be a clown and fall into the trap of crude joking or coarse jesting. It's really easy to get a laugh if you cuss or you talk about sex or crude bodily functions. We know this. If you ever watch stand-up comedians, what do they do? If they're struggling to find a laugh, where do they go? They start cussing. They start talking about sex or crude bodily functions. There's something just unbelievably obscene by the fact that we, we giggle about silliness. I'm like, we're watching kids' movies, you know? It's just like we still find things like talking about rear ends and poo funny, right? Why is that? But he says, don't you do it. Why? Well, because they're out of place. It's not fitting for someone who is called to be holy as God is holy. As someone who has been chosen by God in Christ from, the for, from before the foundation of the world so that we might be holy and blameless before him. Our words are meant to display God. And God has never used words in those ways. God is never indecent. God is never coarse. He isn't given to silly and pointless conversation. God is the one who created humor and created laughter, but he never used words to get a laugh at the expense of someone else. Therefore, that kind of corrupting talk is out of place. But unwholesome words go far beyond what is just explicitly vulgar or even just sort of pointless or crude. unwholesome speech is talk that would harm other people. This is speech that would not help others or promote their wholeness. Unwholesome is the opposite of wholesome, right? So it's, it doesn't lead to their wholeness or their holiness before the Lord. It's speech that divides the God-given unity that we now have in Christ through the gospel. It's saying things that would tear at the bond that we've been given in Christ, And rather than pointing them towards godliness in Christ, it is speech that leads ourselves and others away from him. Unwholesome speech would include things like lying or teaching false doctrine. It would include gossip and slander or any unfair word that might call another's character into question. It's unwholesome when we're sarcastic, when we're critical, when we're cynical. It's unwholesome to whine, to argue, to complain. When we post unkind statements on social media, any type of communication that would break down the unity of the spirit that we have received through Christ or that would mar our gospel witness to the world, then it is unwholesome and corrupting talk. It's out of place. We shouldn't let it come out of our mouths. But you know, even corrupting talk can be more subtle than that. In his book, War of Words, a book that I highly recommend to you, Paul David Tripp even goes so far as to say that Paul is not just talking about cursing or swearing or vulgar four-letter words. In fact, to think of this passage in that way grossly minimizes its intent. Paul has something much more redemptively revolutionary in mind. Now get this. He says, for Paul... Unwholesome talk is me-centered talk 
that has no higher purpose than my own wants, desires, dreams, and demands. For Paul, unwholesome talk is me-centered talk that has no higher purpose than my own wants, desires, dreams, and demands. Unwholesome words, he, he continues, flow from a heart that is controlled by present, personal, earthly desire. They are spoken because they please me and they accomplish my goals. They are an attempt for me to get what I want without any reference to the lordship of Christ or my call to speak as his ambassador. When I read that, I was like, wow, these are some eye-opening words, are they not? I mean... When our speech seeks our own ends apart from the glory of God or the good of the person that I am speaking to, it can and it will lead us all further and further and further toward corruption. I hope that by now you can see that our words really do matter. I mean, as it says in Proverbs 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of of the tongue. Now, can I speak and instantly call someone to die? No. But in my words, I can consider you dead to me. And in my words, I can speak to you in such a way that it leads you towards death. In my words, I might not be able to give you life, but what I can do is, in my words, I can treat you as a living being, an eternal soul that needs Christ, and I can extend words that that might help you in growing to understand and know eternal life. There's power in our words. With it, We can reflect the God who gives life and grace through his words or with our speech. We can seek to undo all that he has done. With our tongues, we can suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness and we can suppress the gospel. We can deceive others into doing the same. With our tongues, we can spew out the same me-centered, vulgar, debased desires of this world or with it, we can commend the gospel to the benefit of all. With our out-of-place words, we can tear at and corrupt the unity of the spirit that God has provided for us in Christ. You see, our unwholesome, me-centered words mar the nature and character of God. And it reflects the nature and character of the world. It's selfish, me-centered attitude that is expressed in every, almost every word you hear in the world. Our unwholesome, me-centered talk tears at the work of Christ. It ruins our witness to the world. Is it any wonder then that Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths? Every word that we speak has either the potential to corrupt, to lead to death, or they have the potential to lead to life. Are we going to use our words... To lead others towards condemnation, towards corruption? Or are we going to use them to lead others to life? But our words not only have the power to corrupt and to lead to death, they have the power to eternally condemn. In Matthew 12, Jesus warns us, 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know where your words come from? It's your heart. The good person out of his good treasure in his heart brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure from his heart brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For I tell you, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So let me ask you, what does your speech reveal about your heart? What do you treasure? What do you regularly speak of? What are the things that you boast in? What wants and desires and dreams and demands do your words reveal? And what does that tell you about what you truly love and what you truly live for? And thinking about your speech, is your speech careless or is it careful? Is your speech self-centered? Is it self-serving? Is your speech filthy? Is it Just given to foolishness? Is it out of place? Is it filled with crude joking? What effect does your words have on others? Who do they point them toward? Toward yourself? Toward some other worldly longing? Do your words have a tendency to produce corrupting thoughts, words, or attitudes in others? One of the passages that we're trying to teach our kids and implement in our kids is Proverbs 15, verse 1. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, right? And how often have we seen that in arguments, for example, right? I say a harsh word, you get angry, you start responding to me with a harsh word, I get more angry, and we see this whole thing compound, right? Friends, we must be careful to examine our words so that by God's grace, we can put off unwholesome speech. May we all repent of our unwholesome speech that would corrupt both ourselves and others. So, not only are we to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but second, because God has given us grace through his word, we are to put on speech that gives grace. God's words give life. God's words are sovereign and powerful. God's words bring order to chaos. God's words give covenant promises that he will never leave or forsake, that he always loves. God's words give us laws to live by. They help us to understand what is good and what is true and what is right and what is holy and what is beautiful and what is perfect. God's words impart wisdom and knowledge and love. When God warns, when God rebukes, when he disciplines, when we see him pronouncing judgment upon others, it is a grace to us in giving us the opportunity to respond to him, to repent, to turn away from our rebelliousness and our hatred and our animosity and our just ignoring him so that we might have life so that we might respond by believing and trusting in him. God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
God's word said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's word said it is finished as he sacrificed himself by dying on a cross for the sins of many. God's word rose from the grave to sit upon his heavenly throne and he said, behold, I am making all things new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage that I will be his God and he will be my son. And in between his resurrection and that future day of redemption, that future day of judgment, that day in which Christ returns, God's word saves sinners and unites us together in him and to each other to live out his words as a covenant community so that our lives together and our words can display the truth and the power and the glory of God to the world and to each other. And how do we primarily do that? We do it through our words. You know, there's much more that could be said about God's words. But a simple summary statement might be that God's words are always good for building up. They always perfectly fit the occasion. And God's words always give grace to those who hear. And so as those who, according to chapter 1, have heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and have believed in him, we've trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, then we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. We have been delivered from God-rejecting, self-seeking sin, and we have been equipped with God's word to be united together in the church that reminds us and points us towards God. Word. We have been empowered by the ever-present Holy Spirit of God who dwells within all believers so that we might be ambassadors for Christ, that we might represent him in, in every area of our lives, including our words. We have, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, learned Christ. We have heard of him. We've been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off our old self that belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so our words are marked by true righteousness and holiness. This is why Paul says to us, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He's not saying, listen, you better wash your mouth out if you want to be saved. And what he's saying here is, you are a new creation. And God has saved you through his word by his grace. 
You have a new identity. You've been created after my likeness in true righteousness and holiness. And so let your life reflect that. Live in light of who you now are. Let your words reflect your new identity in me. God has given us the privilege and the responsibility to be his representatives here on earth. And so we are to make sure that our speech reflects his speech and not that of the world. Let it reflect who you now are, not who you once were. And so rather than corrupting or tearing down one another with careless, worldly, or self-centered words, we are to speak that which is good for building up. Now, this is not flattery, right? He's not just saying, hey, go around and tell everyone else niceties. Oh, those are some nice shoes you have. Oh, I like the way you did your hair. Not that those things are wrong, but we got to make sure that our ultimate purpose is not the end in building up that person for the sake of that person. It can't be rooted in its ultimate purpose as people-pleasing. It means a whole lot more than that. We're not trying to give people the warm fuzzies here. We're not trying to make people just simply think better about themselves. We are to speak in such a way to help them think about Christ and to love him more. That's what it means when when it says to use our words for building one another up. We are to speak only as such as is good for building up toward maturity in Christ. That word building up, we've seen three times already in Ephesians. We saw it back in chapter 2, verse 21, and then we saw it twice in chapter 4 in verses 12 and 16. He's saying, speak words for the purpose of building our unity of the Spirit. Speak words that help us to join together and help us to grow into that dwelling place for God by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, speak words that will aid in our witness to the world. Speak words that will help us to love Christ and to live in light of our new identity in him. Or as he says in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, we are to speak the truth in love for the purpose of edifying the whole church, the whole body of Christ. For how long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our words, just like God's words, were meant to help us all reach maturity in Christ. Have you ever been around somebody that's just like every time you talked with them, it was such an encouragement? I mean, you were just blessed by what they said to you and how they pointed you to Jesus. And you walked away every time from that conversation and you just wanted to be better. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better person. I want to be a better friend. I want, I've been so encouraged by my conversation, by my time with this person that I want to be able to do that type of thing to other people. I, because of that conversation, I love Christ more and I want to help other people love Christ more. Do you have people like that in your life? Do you know that that's what we've been called to as a church? To speak in such a way that that's the result of our conversations. I mean, praise God for that. Be sure to thank them for that the next time you see them. So our words were meant to edify to help one another to love Christ more. But our speech also must fit the occasion. This is really important. 
(laughs) Quite literally, the words are to be for the need or according to the need. We must discern carefully when to speak and how to speak given the circumstances. Different times will indeed call for different measures. We've got to discern through this. For example, uh, in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, Admonish the idle, help the weak, encourage the faint-hearted, be patient with them all. There's three different situations right there in one verse that says, Okay, based upon this person in this situation, you you handle it this way. Based upon this one, you handle it this way. Based upon this one, you handle it this way. We've got to be careful in thinking about how our words Fit the occasion. Proverbs 25 verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It's rich. It's lavish. It's a delight. And if we're going to attempt to write the reversal then, a word unsuitably spoken is like a rotting maggot infested apple that you dug out of the trash and served on the lid of a trash can. In other words, our words must fit the occasion. There are times when the most gracious and loving thing we can do is to rebuke or exhort or reprove or warn or admonish, but we certainly don't do that all the time. There are other times where we must gently encourage and comfort. There are some occasions that calls for us to say nothing at all, and the most gracious words that we can give is to sit with someone and pray in silence. For example, funerals are not a time to give rebukes or advice unless that person has specifically asked you for it. It's not the best time to offer challenges or to give your own inflated opinions of the deceased or their passing. Nor is it helpful to offer platitudes or even well-intended words that are untrue or make light of the situation. You know, I've been to a lot of funerals, and maybe it's because I have a large extended family, and they all lived relatively close together in a small rural community where my mom and dad knew everybody, right? But I went to a lot of funerals, and I can tell you this, that I have heard some of the most hurtful or just plain foolish words come out of the mouths of very well-meaning people. We need to be careful to understand the person and the situation so that we can offer an apt and fitting word. Words need to fit the occasion. And the ultimate aim of our speech in light of the gospel is to give grace to those who hear. The purpose of our speech is to speak the truth in love in such a way that we direct others and ourselves towards the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This is radically different than the speech of the world or the way that the world thinks about speech. The world says you speak to express yourself. You speak to let your opinions and your ideas and your wants and your wishes and your demands known. You speak your mind. You let them have it. You need to. And that's not the way this passage talks about our speech. The overwhelming majority of the talk that we hear in the world is me-centered talk. But the gospel of Jesus Christ changes all that. For those who have been saved by the grace of God, 
through his word, we now are to use our words to give grace to others. We are to express ourselves for the glory of God, for the benefit of those who hear us. We, because we have received the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we no longer speak in order to get, we speak in order to give. We don't talk to make much of ourselves, we talk to make much of Christ. We don't use words to demand what we think is for our own good, we use our words to seek the good of others. I mean, isn't this exactly what we've seen in these practical examples so far in verses 25 through 30? Does lying give grace to your neighbor? No. Does speaking, each one of us speaking the truth with our neighbor because we're members one of another? Absolutely. Right? It, it bolsters, it encourages, it, uh, it builds up that unity that we have as members one of another. Does sinful anger express grace to those who hear us? No. Does speaking anger righteously at times do that? Yeah. But more often, does seeking to reconcile when we have been sinfully angry towards one another, does that speak words of grace? Yes. Does stealing give grace? No. What about laboring hard so that we may have something to give to anyone in need? Absolutely. You see, whatever we do, there's a purpose behind it. Whatever we are, what Paul calls us to in all of these examples is to do because of grace and to do for grace. Whatever we do is for the purpose of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Grace changes us to seek God's glory and the good of others before myself. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, man, so much of my speech is this me-centered talk. I talk about myself. I talk about my desires, my longings, my cravings so much. I'm beginning to realize how unwholesome the way that I talk is and how infrequently I speak for the intended purpose of giving grace to others. Well, the gracious life-giving words that I can commend to you is that our Lord Jesus Christ died for every careless and corrupting word. Every unwholesome word that has come out of your mouth. That while we were still sinners, spewing corrupt words from our mouths, Christ died for the ungodly. And so, repent. Turn from it. Turn toward Christ. Turn away from your desire to seek your own glory, to love the world and to express your love for the world and to make those self-centered demands with your lips. Confess your sins to God and to those who have sinned against you. You must realize that confession and repentance and forgiving those who have sinned against you, these are all words of grace. It's grace. When we express that, it's grace. 
We're giving grace. Honestly, if you realize that you have sinned against another with your words and you're struggling to think even how to begin to give grace to others with your words, then one of the best and easiest things for you to do is to confess your sin to them. These are grace-giving words. You know, giving grace to those who hear doesn't require a master's of divinity or some sermon. All right? when, we, when I'm talking about giving grace here, you need to understand, I was just thinking about this before I came up. A lot of times we get freaked out by the idea of giving grace because we're, we're looking for it to produce something in someone else, Right? If I'm going to give grace, then they have to at least feel something or I speak in such a way that they now live differently. Well, you're taking on too much and you're making it about yourself. God's, God's privilege of giving us the ability to speak words of grace is very, very, very seemingly ordinary, but life transforming, right? And it has nothing to do with what the perceived fruit is, but the fact that it was truth spoken in love for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. That's grace. Speaking the truth in love, whether that comes from a God-glorifying rebuke to someone who desperately needs it and is blind to it, or it's a gentle word of encouragement. You give grace to others when you share the gospel message, when you tell others of the grace that you yourself have received in Jesus Christ. You give grace when you point a brother or sister, to a single verse that has encouraged you. You give grace through prayer. Guys, there's a reason why we call prayer grace. A heartfelt, simple prayer. As you intercede on, on behalf of another, as you pray for them and whatever their situation is, boy, that is grace. You are giving grace to those who hear. Praise. Just offering up Praise, telling God, talking to God about who he is and talking to others about who God is, even through song. What we were doing just a little while ago as we were intentionally thinking about our words and singing those back to God and singing those to each other, that is giving grace. Thanksgiving. Giving thanks is giving grace. In chapter 5, verse 4, we are to put off filthy, foolish, and crude talk which are out of place. But instead, Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. You know, this is maybe one of the biggest reasons why our speech is so unwholesome. Is that we're simply not grateful. We are a thankless people who want more and more and more and want to make much of me. And I you know, and so I'm giving thanks for me and rejecting all other things rather than giving thanks for all other things that God has given me and the people that God has placed around me. And so make it a practice to thank God and other people. Tell people why you're grateful to the Lord for them. Look for ways to bless others with your words. Now not flatter them, but to bless them by encouraging them and pointing them toward Christ. May our words give grace to those who hear. Now, because God has given us grace through his word, we are to give grace through ours. But before we can end, we need to look at verse 30 for the motivation for why we seek to give grace 
for our words. You see, not only do we put off unwholesome speech and put on speech that gives grace, but third, our goal is to honor the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I could preach an entire sermon on this verse all by itself, okay? I'm really, really, really tempted to get into the Trinity on this, but I'm not going to because Caleb talked to it a few week, about it a few weeks ago, and I put some stuff up on our blog that kind of just talks about all of, of these passages that we see in Ephesians regarding the Trinity, so I would commend that to you, redeemerchurch.wordpress.com. So I'm going to avoid that and just talk about how this ties into the verse that precedes it. Okay? But verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, so far from being some impersonal force or this power, this, this sort of dormant power that comes from God, this verse clearly shows that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person within the Trinity. He is the Holy Spirit of God that is distinct from the Father and from the Son. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, as we see in this verse, to seal us in Christ for the day of redemption. So what he is doing, his work is unique from the Father and the Son, and that he applies the plan of the Father that has been accomplished or completed through the work of the Son. And back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we saw that a seal is a sign that marks uh, or, or mark that indicates ownership or authenticity. It's like a cattle brand or the royal seal, you know, where the king would take his signet and put it upon the melted wax and it would seal that envelope and it would say, hey, this is from me. This belongs to me. This is a message from the king. The Holy Spirit is our identification that we belong to God, that we are under God's care and God's protection. It is the Holy Spirit that testifies, that verifies that we are children of God. He is our seal. He is our guarantee. He guarantees God's promises will be fulfilled and that we do have an inheritance in him. And he does this until we acquire possession of it in the day of redemption, the day of Christ's return. And from that point in which he caused us to be born again, and until the day when at last we see our Lord Jesus face to face, the Holy Spirit assures us and enables us to love God and other people. This is how we know, according to our children's catechism, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit imparts every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to us in Christ Jesus. He is the one who gives us wisdom and knowledge in the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who unites us together in Christ. He is the bond that unites us to Christ and to each other. And his role, again, is to apply the plan of the Father that has been completed through the work of the Son. And according to this passage, the Holy Spirit is personal. We have the ability to grieve the Holy Spirit. If this was an impersonal force, could you grieve an impersonal force? Can you make gravity sad? No. But you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can offend the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change what he has done. It doesn't change what he will accomplish in and through you. But you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Let me try to explain it this way. Imagine that you, uh, or imagine an infant left to die in a famine-stricken, 
disease-ridden desert, when along comes a king, and the king sees the child, and he has compassion of the child. He takes him in. He adopts him. He clothes him and cares for him. He loves him and nourishes him. He puts... He, he, he adorns him with lavish garments. He raises the child. He teaches the child. He instructs the child. He, everything that child would ever need and ever want, that king provides. And when the child gets old enough, the king says, listen, all this that is mine, all this will be yours. I'm giving it to you. And in a symbol of his uh, promise, of this inheritance to the child, he places that seal of the king around the child's neck. But as the child continues to grow, he at times longs for that desert. And there are moments where late at night he sneaks away and he, he climbs over the wall of the castle and he goes out and he lives, he returns to that desert. He lives among a band of hostile Thieves and immoral murderers and beggars and liars and cheats. He wants to kind of live in both worlds. And the king finds out. The king comes to him and he says, why? Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to trade our family for that? Why would you want to trade all that I've given you, all that I've promised you, all that I've made you, all that I promised you will be? Why would you want to be like the Israelites in Isaiah 63 verse 10 and to trade all of that by rebelling against me? These people are your enemy. That's not who you are. Why? Why would you want to do that? I mean, do you understand the grief? Do you understand why Paul connects that to the way we use our words? See, who we are, what we've been given has to change the way we think about everything in our lives, including our speech. Why would we, if we've then been saved, if we've been adopted, if we've been cleansed, if we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, if that inheritance, that eternal glorious inheritance is ours, why would we ever want to grieve the Holy Spirit by returning to that old nature, by trying to live in that old identity rather than the new one that we've been given in Christ? Because it is utter foolishness. It cannot satisfy. It's of no advantage to you. And so honor the work of the Holy Spirit by displaying the glory of Christ in your life. But that statement that Paul makes also reminds us that behind every single seemingly meaningless or insignificant word or thought or action or decision or attitude that there is a spiritual battle that is raging. We saw back in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that prior to God making us alive in Christ, 
We followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we too were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we were, apart from God making us alive. There are spiritual rulers and authorities, evil, wicked, spiritual rulers and authorities that would seek to undo the work of Christ in our lives. And in verse 27, when we were dealing with anger, we saw that in our anger, we can give an opportunity to the devil. And so here we are cautioned that in those seemingly insignificant words, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. That behind every mundane aspect of the Christian life, there is a spiritual reality. That eternal things are being dealt with day by day in every single word, in every single choice, in every single thought, in every single act. Friends, there is eternal, glorious, An extraordinary grace in every ordinary activity. Even in our speech. Now this is both amazing and overwhelming. But don't let that lead you to despair. There is a power at work within you. All those who are in Christ, who have been given the spirit of Christ, have the power within them to do what God has called them to do. The Holy Spirit is at work, and it will take the work of the Holy Spirit for you to not grieve the Holy Spirit. It will take the edifying grace of the Holy Spirit for you to give grace to those who hear you. And so let's Pray that the Holy Spirit would give us grace so that we might give it to others. This ought to lead us to great dependence upon the Holy Spirit in our lives, in everything that we do, so that we might give grace and not grieve him. Because God has given us grace through his word, let us give grace through ours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the reminder that there's an eternal weight of glory behind every single aspect of our lives. That our words do matter. When we're joking, when we're just spending time with friends, when we're angry, when someone has sinned against us, when we're feeling broken, But when we're delighting in Christ, our words have great significance. There is life and death in our words. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our heart motives, our attitudes that are welling up from our hearts that are expressed in our words. I pray that we would see our words as uh, a clear indication of what we're loving and what we're living for. And Lord, I pray that by your word, as your spirit works and applies it deep into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives, our words would change so that we might give grace to those who hear us. 
Father, what an amazing and overwhelming privilege it is to be an ambassador and representative of you. And I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that we would not grieve the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but instead would delight in him, would depend upon him, would lean into him so that we might give grace to those who hear us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.